Hey, Louie. Oh, Gavin, 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 I see what you've done. Sometimes I learn by watching and, and how dare and, you, and, you know, see what how you dare do. you. How very <laughs> dare you. Gavin, dear listeners, said, I wonder if I could do what Louie did, but better. <laughs> know if it's better i don't know if it's better but it absolutely is gavin so hi everyone this is the next reviews we are a film podcast where we take a film subject such as an actor director or a mini genre and we talk about what's good and we talk about what's bad and then we also give you a full history but that's not what we're doing today this is a very special bonus episode. Gavin and I sometimes love things a lot. Yes. <laughs> and and we want more of that stuff. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we released um, my interview with Sam Golzari from uh, American Dreams. And Gavin said, hey, uh, my number one movie of the year, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. I want to see if I can reach out to the star and see if he'll talk to me. And I said, bitch, pop off. <laughs> um, and and I told you this. I was like, Gavin, like, it might take a while. Like, yeah. don't be don't be mad or, like, sad if, you know, you don't hear right away. And then surprise, surprise, you heard from him right away. Absolutely. So I was able to sit down this past weekend with Michael Martin, as Louis mentioned, he's the star of Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. It was my favorite film of 2020. And he's just a really generous person. He's a working actor. He's been in the business for over 30 years. And he was cool enough to just sit down and talk with me about the film, about his career, the particulars of things he's been doing, what acting like has been during the pandemic, which has not been easy, which I know it's not easy for a lot of people, but... The entertainment yeah. industry is on ice, so right. I I I can't like stress enough like how um, I, like you said, he's very generous. I listened to the the recording in his interview, and I was like, oh my god, he's so honest. He's so very um, upfront about who he is, his successes and failures, um, the way he perceives himself, and 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 also like the drive he wants to be working. He wants yeah. to be uh, seen as this artist. And um, I also just love this idea that he is a New Orleans uh, actor's actor who has been around the block. And uh, yeah, it's really good. And and so again, uh, like last time, it, this movie is available pretty much anywhere. I saw it on Amazon Prime. You can just, it's like, you can rent it, not Prime. It's not on Prime, but you can rent it for like $4 or something. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's very well worth your time. Please yeah. go out and rent it. It's a great film. As you will see in it, Michael is really amazing. He's sort of the the heart and soul of the movie. It opens with him and it closes with him. He is the, you know, uh, like you said, this the heart of it. Um, and you can tell, like, he, I mean, and God, ugh, in the interview, he talks about how the directors found him in a bar. Yeah. And so he, it's, it's, it's just, it's too good. It's too good. Uh, so we're going to let you listen to that interview now. Two things up front. One, uh, when Michael mentions the character Tyrone during the section, which I ask him about his favorite role. Tyrone is one of the lead characters in the play Long Day's Journey Into Night. And the other thing is, if you have not seen this movie, it's better if you do, because this interview contains spoilers. So I have here with me Michael Martin, star of Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, as I have mentioned on the show, is my favorite film of 2020. Uh, yes. So this is a real treat for me. Uh, 
Michael, thank you for coming on the Mixed Reuse. It was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for uh, giving me something interesting to do on Sunday night. <laughs> that's that's literally the only goal of my show. So yeah. um, Sunday, nights are, Sunday nights need help. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where do you want to start? Uh, so I, I promised you from the jump, we are not only going to talk about the film. I, I did so much research going into this. So I just want to lay a little bit of the groundwork for the audience who who does, you know, may not be familiar with the film or how it got started. Bloody Nose okay. Empty Pockets is a hybrid documentary sort of blending a mix of uh, reality, real people with the idea of this bar that is having its last night open. Um, all, all of you that were in the film, you're an actor, but a lot of the people that were in the film were just sort of playing quote unquote versions of themselves. No, right? I was too, but yes, <laughs> whether they had, the, the only, I think, two people, three people had on-camera experience essentially as musicians okay. or background actors. They weren't uncomfortable in front of a camera. Um, none of the others had explicit acting experience. But yes, all of them, myself included, were playing close to our true, close or at our true selves. So the film is directed by the Ross brothers and they've done a lot of really interesting, very strange stuff with documentaries. Uh, the film was shot in 2016 for an, a total of an 18 hour day shoot. Yeah. I understand there was another day shoot. It must've been exteriors or something because everything I see on the film, except the Las Vegas exteriors were part of the 18 days, 18 hours that I was there. I don't know what day two was. <laughs> and so they they tracked you down one of them had seen you in a production a stage production of long day's journey in a night and they right. tracked you down specifically how did that go what was that like to be sought out that that was unprecedented then and still is honestly um i do um i actually you know now between my own aging and the pandemic, this is not as true as it was then. I would still be considered a maintenance man for my principal income, uh, but I have far fewer clients and far less income doing that <laughs> now than I did then. Um, it is still my day job. Uh, the uh, I was I was cleaning the Avenue Pub, which I don't mind plugging at any opportunity. If you come down to New Orleans, make time for the Avenue Pub. It's a special place, and um, and they tracked me down there, which I suppose is not brain surgery um, because I'm I'm pretty prominent on Facebook and elsewhere, but it does take some doing. My name is Michael Martin, after all, and there are a lot <laughs> of us. Um, they tracked me down to the pub unannounced, introduced themselves, said that they were, described the premise of the film. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was inherently flattered being a jobbing actor who was found cleaning a bar because um, People don't seek me out. Um, uh, they don't track me down. And uh, Long Day's Journey and Tonight in particular was a project that I was very proud of. Um, 
I did my due diligence on the Rosses. I did not know them when they came through the door at that time. I didn't take film work seriously enough that I typically did my Googling. But because the stakes on this project were clearly so high, uh, being asked to drink on camera for 18 hours is, yeah. is a dicey proposition. Um, uh, I did my due diligence on them. They clearly played in a larger pool than I'm usually found in. I said, yes. Um, so it was, it was, uh, partly the flattery, largely the flattery and partly their prominence. I've, I, I probably would have on the basis of the plat flattery. I probably would have said yes, even if they hadn't been <laughs> Sundance <laughs> darlings. Um, yeah, that's how that happened. So you mentioned in an interview with Lauren Wissot for documentary.com uh, that there was no preparation and no rehearsal and that you specifically don't have an improv background. So what sort of challenges did that represent over the course of this 18-hour film shoot? I'm fairly good. I think I'm going to go ahead and say very good. Uh, I, I'm very good at winging it. Um, just, you know, as a, a starting skill, I, I'm a good cold reader. I'm a good cold auditioner. I'm good at responding to whatever is happening in the moment. Um, it was crucially important to the Rosses and probably actually another reason that I continued with the project because I considered stepping out a couple of times up to and including the day of the shoot. I almost turned around and went back home. <laughs> um, uh, that people not be obliged to their scenario. They did want something, um, good God, I'm blanking the man's name, Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> Jesus God, I just talked about oh, it. Little old him. <laughs> yeah, little. They did want something O'Neill-esque out of me. They did want, you know, the the tragic, um, tragic has alcoholic has been out of me. They did want. Uh, they did also find Michael Jeter an inspiration in that stage production of Grand Hotel that was forwarded to me. Uh, as well as uh, uh, O'Neill-esque speech that they hoped that I would adapt and, and deliver at some point in my own words. But they emphasized and re-emphasized that I was obliged to none of it, that I could simply bring what I was bringing. And I'm lucky that uh, they did because I really brought them nothing that they asked for. <laughs> it just... I just failed on all counts. I was entirely committed partly by the nature of my own personality and partly because of my wariness of the project to bring something entirely more suspicious um, um, to the project than, than, um, than the O'Neill model would suggest. Uh, my, my old man, which is the same thing as saying me is a lot more hostile um, and a lot more sardonic than uh, the O'Neill or the Jeter models would suggest. 
Um, I think he's as tragic. I think he's as um, sad. Um, but he's, I, he's not, I don't think, as pathetic. I, 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 and I, I really didn't want to do pathetic. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I got there. I 100% think you completely got there. I think there's actually a real warmth to that character. So it's funny to hear you say, you know, that he is more uh, meaner or or more terse. But I, I don't know. I, th- I think there's a real, I, I don't know. Because actually my next question was going to be, um, you know, we're not just a film podcast. We're also heavily LGBTQIA themed, both me and my co-host, uh, you know, identify as that. And one of the things that we're always talking about uh, in the queer community is chosen family. And that's ah. one of the things that I think is really impressive about the movie is it, you know, for good or bad, there really feels like a chosen family element to that. Was it Here hard to it. sort of build that over just 18 hours? I, that is, I, I have not seen this talked enough about, maybe because it's just too elusive a concept to talk about. There's been... A number of of, um, controversies or simply like raised eyebrows about one aspect or another of the making of this film. Um, One of the principal one, of course, is, is this a documentary or is this a work of fiction? But below that, there is also, why is it set in Las Vegas when this bar is still open and in New Orleans? I can't address that. I, I'm not part of the Ross's larger decision-making process, but I assume that they chose Las Vegas because it's more immediately symbolic of uh, the American dream on the skids, although I think New Orleans will do for that same symbolic <laughs> purpose in a pinch. Um, but for whatever reason that it was set in Las Vegas, um, it, I think, was necessary that it was cast in New Orleans because there's a particular element, one that I've never seen duplicated anywhere else, uh, a particular element of the local crazy as opposed to the Las Vegas crazy or the Nashville crazy or the San Francisco crazy, um, a particular element of the local crazy is that everybody here, high or low born, is ready to drop an entertaining variation of their private personas at the drop of a hello. It is the most, that's the Mardi Gras, that's the Halloween, that's the gay Easter parade that is my and my beloved's special thing. Um, Everybody here is performative for the least reason. So, or none at all. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, if you want to build a sense of community out of a pe- group of people who have largely not met until the day of, uh, New Orleanians is what you want to fill the room with. <laughs> um, because they're, they're ready to put on a show of themselves at any moment. And again, still being authentic to themselves, not being not being fakey. It is simply part of the local character. Uh, does that make sense? That makes uh, an amazing amount of sense. I actually 
have just been within the last two years been to um las vegas and new orleans for the first time funny enough new orleans in march right as everything was shutting down so it was kind of a scramble to get back to new york and uh and i would i would take new orleans over las vegas any day (laughs) i just yeah i mean people tell me their life story right after they start asking me for change it's just astonishing (laughs) it just it's all one thing can you give me some money and here's my biography for the last 20 years (laughs) anyway um I not everybody. New New Orleans is also still and like obviously will continue to be, given the way our economy is unfolding. Because um, New Orleans is a small town, everybody says that again about the cities. Oh, it's really a small town. New Orleans is a small town, and two or three of the people in the room, I knew by name or I knew by sight. Um, but none of them, none of them were friends. The most, the most crucial was Peter Elwell, uh, the musician I shared the long scene with. Uh, I had seen him perform in one of his bands, I think twice, and we knew who each other were. You know, we'd hi helloed after his shows. Uh, to my knowledge, I, he had never seen my work, but we we knew each other. We knew each other as working artists in New Orleans tend to know one another. Um, and one or two others. I, uh, Ricky, Red, Ricky Red qualifies as somebody, a, a friend whom I've known for a long time. But known for a long time doesn't mean I'd seen her for the previous two years. I hadn't. We'd just known each other for a long time. Uh, I'm I'm so glad you brought up that scene, specifically the, the you need to get out of here speech scene, which I think mm-hmm. is really... Uh, you know, it comes sort of at the start of the third act, if if right. you can assign acts to this movie. And it, it's really the heart of the film for me. And I just, I'm very curious because I know every, everything feels so organic in that scene. If you had, if that speech came from somewhere, like a lived experience for you, I had a, I had a very similar experience years ago. I was in a dead end job that I hated and I was at a retirement party of a friend of mine and he pulled me aside and was essentially like, you need to get out of here. Oh, I know cool. having a job versus being in a bar nightly is different, but right. I, I really connected to me in the same way. And I'm just wondering if that is a, a lived thing for you or if you just... No, of course it's like a lived thing. thing. As 58, when I filmed it, I'm 62 now. As I said at the top of the interview, my prospects are no better now than they were before the movie was released. Um, uh, I just have done... Yeah, no, what? I don't. I don't want to tell bitchy stories. The last couple <laughs> things. Uh, the last couple things that came my way. One of them was 20 bucks. And the other one was fucking insulting. We uh, uh, we never <laughs> shy away from bitchy stories here, so please. Yeah, it's <laughs> truly not worth it. It's true. It's it. My there was. I will side stop on this just briefly because it will probably come up again. I had in the early going, and I'm talking Sundance in the early Sundance, and then um, Germany. Um, in the early going, I had the hope that it, the prominence of the movie and the prominence of my performance within the movie would change my prospects. Um, I quickly disabused myself of that notion. Um, 
I had a slight renewal of hope when it was a hit again in London, which took me a week or two to register that it was a hit all over again in the London Film Festival and was one of the things to see there. Um, and now it's gone for good. Yeah, I just, it's not, it's a director's movie. It's a director's movie. It's not an actor's movie. However fine my work is in it, the nature of the movie itself mitigates against my work being recognized as work. Moving back to the question that you actually asked. Um, yeah, my sense of failure is daily and inherent. Um, <laughs> If you are 62 and you've been acting on stage and film for 30 whatever years, I didn't actually start until my 30s, and people have to ask you what you do for a living, then yeah, you count as a failure. Um, uh, and yes, that scene was easy to propel. Get out of this box and don't go into another one. And don't go into another one after that. All right. Because you, come on, because you're still young and you can still do, you, you can still do something other than what I've done. This was a scenario that was prearranged. Like I said, the Rosses had scenarios that they wanted to have happen. They wanted Ricky to perform. They wanted the fireworks in the parking lot. They wanted the um, uh, toasts that uh, the one super aggressive guy does off his um, index cards. Um, there are various other scenarios that they wanted to set up. But they didn't insist how they play out. And if they didn't happen, they didn't even insist on their existence. Um, the scenario with Pete was one that I brought to the table and their response was, yeah, sure. Sounds good. Um, but it wasn't a situation where I called three or four, three or <laughs> Pete three or four weeks prior to shooting and said, Hey, this is, we, you want to do this with me? I didn't even know he was in the film uh, until I got there. Uh, or maybe a day or two before, but, um, but I didn't know, I knew I wanted to play that kind of scene with somebody. I didn't know who was going to be available. I knew Pete well enough to know that he would be emotionally accessible to it. And I said to him on the spot, do you mind if I make a hard pass at you in four or five hours? And he said, no, sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, and and that is really as much preparation as there was. He knew that he had to try to wake me up from one of my cat snoozes. Um, I knew that I was going to try to talk him into getting him getting out of there. Everything else plays out between us as we were playing it out in that moment. So yeah, it's as it's as as authentic as you can get, given that it was discussed in advance. And it is as motivated as you can get, given the fact that I'm still alive. <laughs> um, that's the best I can do. 
That's that's incredibly fascinating. It really, really is. I mean, that's such a good answer to that. Um, I did promise we would not stick to the film. You did mention you got your start in your 30s. Uh, mm-hmm. So what what was it about acting? Like, what made you want to get into acting? I don't remember. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up in Minneapolis. I was there. I lived in Minneapolis uh, until my late 20s. A couple of things happened in my personal slash family life to force me to realize that I needed to try something else with my life and going on the literal theory, like I actually said this out loud to people, going on the literal theory that if you go bumming around while you're in, the, you're in your 20s, you are a kid on a lark, but if you go bumming around in your 30s, you're actually a bum. <laughs> um, I, I managed to get on the Greyhound with like $200 when I was 29. So I just made it right under the wire. And I had not honestly been out of the state, except I think to um, Canada, Niagara Falls, something like that. We're Roseanne sitcom kind of poor. That's exactly yeah. how I grew up. I describe it. Yeah. I describe it to people almost the exact same way. Yeah. No, it's a very specific kind of poverty. And I, I had not traveled. So I, I went bumming around by Greyhound uh, to those places where I knew people who would be willing to let me stay on a sofa for a couple of days. Um, Chicago was first. I fell in love with that city. New Orleans was second or third or fourth down the line. I really fell in love hard with New Orleans. I tried to stay here. The town whipped my ass. I called mommy for the emergency bus ticket back home. I left again at 32. The town whipped my ass a second time. <laughs> like, like you know, near, near homeless whipped my ass. Went home a second time. And the third time I left town at 34, I decided Chicago rather than New Orleans. And that was the right throw weight for me. That was um, enough, uh, a temperamentally enough city for me without being something that was actually going to knock me over sideways. And that was where I started building an adult life, um, including the acting career. But honestly, that only started because I was working in a telemarketing room with the artistic director or co-artistic director of one of the local, uh, one of the Chicago local fringe theater companies with whom I struck up a fast friendship. And when he had an actor drop out of his latest show, his instinct was that I would be able to do the role. And so he, he literally, I mean, I had a little bit of glancing experience with theater in, in, Minneapolis, but nothing that would inspire that kind of confidence. Um, uh, but his, his sense of it was that, I'm sorry, I need to name names again. If I'm naming the <laughs> Avenue Pub, I also need to name Bo O'Reilly and the Curious Theater branch. Bo got me started doing theater because I sat near him in the Chicago Symphony telemarketing room, and he had an actor bail. And... Uh, and that was probably the first time, first and last time I showed up at the first rehearsal with almost all of my lines learned. 
because I, I knew that everybody was going to be staring at me and they all had uh, years of experience on me. So I made more sure than I've ever made since that I knew what the, that I was prepared when I fucking walked in the door. Um, and I did more work with the curious and I did more work with other companies around the curious around that, um, circuit of energy until, uh, we moved to new Orleans. Well, Eric and I met in 99, we moved to new Orleans in 2002 and I started rebuilding here. By the time I started rebuilding here, uh, film was added to it as well as stage because New Orleans was probably still is. Again, everything bets, all bets are off because of the <laughs> pandemic, but was and probably still is one of the low tax centers of filming. Yeah. So I started to get the, I, the day player jobs in New Orleans, as well as more interesting roles from the student producers and the indie guys. Um, but yeah, professional credits are still pretty scarce on the ground. Mo most of them are low budget shoots. I, I do have to ask, since you brought up the pandemic, uh, right before the pandemic hit, you were in a production of Noises Off, a really well-reviewed production of Noises Off, by the way. Um, and that had just closed? before no no they weren't connected oh okay. um they they it closed um not again it was already scheduled to close oh, okay uh it closed the weekend that the hard rock hotel collapsed oh my god yes, we were so the, we were there like i said that's when we were there we were we were yeah. like oh what is the because the trolley system was rerouted and yeah. everything and we were like what is what's happening yeah, yeah no everybody was terrified only about half our closing afternoon audience showed up it was a superb production and it and i really i'm clinging to it even today and it's close to a year now i'm clinging to it even today because noise is off Le Petit is one of the principal stages in the New Orleans community. It was my first credit on one of our principal stages in three or four years. Um, I frankly did not get it except that the first person that they had wanted was not available, but I don't care. Uh, yeah, I you got, got it. it. It doesn't matter. I got it. I had a <laughs> splendid time. The reviews were splendid. And most importantly, I was not miserable. Unlike, like, <laughs> unlike nine out of ten projects that I do, I, I, I was actually quite relaxed and happy in the production of Noises Off. And it was nice to be reminded that that is actually an option with my personality. I, I don't have to be miserable in order to be doing interesting work. Um, no, it was it was and oh Jesus, those other actors in the cast just in terms of I I don't know how well you know the play. Oh, I I love the play, so okay, I know well, it very well. Selden <laughs> kind of rolls loose around in the play. He's kind of on his own world and on his own timeline, and but most importantly, he has to carry very little of the farce mechanics. There's only two or three scenes where the actor's sense of timing is crucial to keeping the propulsion moving forward. Um, otherwise, he's cloning. He's cloning. <laughs> um, uh, he, he's cloning on the edges of the main action. And 
oh, the actors I was working with, I, not in a not when I was thirty, not in a million years could I pull off the feats of 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 comic timing and just physical mastery that they were pulling off. Um, I, it was nice to be credited with a, a, a scene stealing thing. But the fact of the matter is, is that the nature of the role makes that possible. If I had to time my crosses and my pants dropping and my staircase <laughs> crashing the way those guys had to do it, nah, no way. <laughs> the play would have ground to a halt. Um, so, yes, that was a good time was had by all, me included. Since the pandemic has hit, though, things probably sort of frozen in amber almost like yeah i'm assuming i i did know and i'm gonna come back to it i do i do know that you did complete a short film right. during but uh but everything else has been kind of yeah. like i'm just curious how because I, I i know the plight of a lot of working actors right now is that there is no work no there is no work um i i well no that's an oversimplification. Um, I, I have an agent who is putting me up for things diligently, and I'm just frankly not getting them. And, and I don't know if that's, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know any more than any actor knows why they're not, they're, I mean, good, bad, or indifferent auditions, I'm not getting callbacks on any. And it's other than a three or four month lull there, it's not that she's not putting me up for things. Um, I've done two independent uh, shorts, one of which I had the lead and played a, paid, paid a couple hundred bucks. The other one was essentially a favor for a friend, single scene. And I said, give me 20 bucks so I can tell people I don't work for free. And she said, fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, yes, I did the short film and one of my drag persona, um, which uh, Madame de Cameltoe, I call her. Um, and uh, I have two, but the other one hasn't seen the light of day for a while. Can I ask about the drag? Because Louie and the I are both... Is just me being weird. What would you <laughs> like to know? <laughs> Louie and I are both big drag fans. We've been known to tip the dolls. And I've, I've researched you online, so I ran across uh, Madame Dick Hamilton and Miss right. Daisy, uh, your new short film, Madame D, which was completed during all of this nonsense right. that, that the world is going through at the moment. Uh, so what, what got you into drag and what made you... Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. You really must like long answers. Or I, really <laughs> I love like... long answers. All right. All right. <laughs> Eight years ago, I'm going to say, give or take a year, uh, a friend who, uh, again, the network of, of artists who are doing it out of pocket, the, uh, the, uh, a friend who uh, knew some Floridians, a couple who have become good friends. Yeah, I'm lucky that they did because this is one of the projects in which I acted like a complete bitch. Um, uh, got in touch, said that they had a new musical that they were trying to produce themselves. Would I consider a role in it? I looked at the script. I got in touch with them. I said, honestly, you're going to have to make it more interesting than this. I, I'm not doing it for what you're talking about. 
I was really pretty much that blunt. And um, they got back and said, okay, you can play the, uh, you can play the sexual drug addict father of the main character who tries to kill her son uh, because I don't remember why. And I said, okay, well, that's more interesting. <laughs> and um, so that was my first significant drag role. There was one other besides that, which is what caused my friend to get in touch with me in the first place. And um, as would be manifest by my performance in Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, I have a crappy sense of boundaries. One, one thing that I am jealous of professional actors for, and I mean literally jealous of them, not just, oh, poor me about it, is that, you know, they go in, they do the role, they do it superbly, they do it with complete emotional accessibility, and then they're done for the day and they go home. <laughs> I don't do that. And when I was playing this awful woman, I, I, I got into character by behaving awfully. <laughs> I was just a nightmare, both in the project and in my home life. And as a result of that, I said, okay, this is not safe turf for you. This is not safe turf for you. you this is too emotionally fraught for you. No more drag. And I stayed away from it for two or three years until another filmmaker, another do-it-yourself guy said, who I had worked with previously, said, would you consider working with me again? And I said, maybe I haven't made it clear to you, but I'm your love slave. And if I'm physically available, I'll do what you want me to do. <laughs> he got in touch. And then once I was committed then he said, oh, by the way, you're playing a woman. And my anxiety, he's, he's, because he's a bastard. And, and, and my anxiety went through the roof again. I had now played female twice on stage, but that's on stage. Right. And in one of the two instances, I was utterly horrid uh, as a person. But the film there's much less way places to hide um he didn't even actually want me to do it in drag he wanted me to play it in whatever my street clothes happened to be that day and and just and i refused that i said no if i'm playing a woman i am going to at least dress as a woman <laughs> um Long and short is that got done, a related project with the same character got done. Penny was her name. I, I played Penny twice. And audience response was such that I went, okay. Because everybody went nuts. Everybody went nuts. I remind <laughs> everybody of their maiden aunt or their cat lady school teacher or... <laughs> The crazy lady who lives down the street, I re in drag, I remind everybody of somebody from their childhood, and they loved it. 
Um, and I said, all right, you have to normalize your relationship with drag because you don't have that many more cards to play. <laughs> and, and if people respond to you this positively as in female persona, then you just have to get comfortable with it. And then since then, by reputation, yes, I, I have gotten comfortable with it and I don't necessarily tear up the room when I'm, when I'm playing a female character. Madame is my attempt at a character that I own rather than rather than a project specific role. It's my attempt at a character that follows me around. I've done her on stage for a few times. I tried uh, developing a cabaret burlesque approach with her. I am still doing that. Um, the short film came about again, like most things in my life come about because of Facebook, I, I planned on entering a short horror film competition. That was a step that I had not taken with her uh, or with myself. And um, I posted about that half-assed plan online and a filmmaker, a local filmmaker, who by then were a couple months into the pandemic. Uh, he said, yeah, I'm bored. I'm depressed. I'd like to work with you. Let's let's talk. And it took me a couple of weeks to get the communications together. But I looked at his fucking website, and he's a fucking genius. And I went, oh, okay, this guy is way too good for me to work with. It. And I told him as much. Um, but he laughed and got over it. Uh, his name's John Lavin. Not someone else for you to look up. Everything in that movie is, other than putting on the wig and the dress, everything in that movie is John. He shot it, he edited it, he scored it. Um, uh, I mean, I got my friends together in the supporting roles and they're all supremely good. John is as close to a one-man band as a filmmaker gets. And, and that thing looks great. It does. Yeah, it's it's really great. And of course, we will link to it uh, on our Twitter and on our Instagram, yeah. uh, because I, I think people should see it. It's I, yeah. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Um, so that That's the whole story. I'm I'm pursuing. I'm trying to lean into what I have to offer and what I mostly have to offer, especially female, is that I scare people. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I'm trying to lean into, I'm trying to lean into the crone. There are, and being comfortable with that kind of self-presentation is not something I do once and get over it. Yeah. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing struggle. But she's important to me. The power of what I can do as her is important to me. And I'll get used to it. <laughs> it, it it's a good piece of work. The phrase lean into the crone is brilliant. I just need <laughs> yeah. you to know that. On the show, we we normally do this thing called the five-star reviews and the one-star reviews where we talk about sort of our favorite thing that the performer does and our least favorite thing. And you don't have to name names. You don't have to get specific. But I am curious, what do you have a favorite role? And do you have a least favorite role you've ever done? Um, I definitely have a least favorite. <laughs> uh, a favorite role... This is also typical of uh, the am ambitious and under-accomplished actor. Eight or nine years ago now, 
Um, I played George when I was a little bit less haggard looking. I, I played George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in a New Orleans production. Um, I killed it. I knocked it out of the park. I, it was the only time I have seriously won local theater awards. Um, two of them, I think. There were more of them at the time. I think I won two of the three. Um, I was a great George, and I was almost as good as Lear. And nevertheless, the role I remain proudest of is actually still Tyrone because I was not a natural match for him. Um, George, I make I made a great deal of sense. Lear, even, I made a fair amount of sense um, because of my over-the-topness. <laughs> but Tyrone, Tyrone should be a physically imposing man. He, he makes his living as a leading man of the stage of his day. And, and I'm simply not that. He's normally played by men of, of size and height and weight. And I'm a small man. And I, the distance I had to travel to get a good um, Tyrone on stage is what I remain proudest of. Um, that was not that was not a uh, not something you would automatically think of me for. Um, the least favorite is a. a I, this is why I don't get cast in professional projects. The least favorite was a day player role in um, Get Hard. The Will Ferrell I, movie, which I still receive residual checks, so <laughs> I should shut up. But I, I, there is a scene, I have never watched the movie. Um, there is a scene where Kevin Hart's character goes out and gathers up a flock, I guess, of, <laughs> of homeless men and uh, a, one transvestite to release into the wine cellar that he has converted into a prison in order to toughen up the other actor yeah uh uh like he's trying to give him the experience of prison and experience of being harassed by other inmates and we don't see the scene where he's out in i guess la i like i said i have not watched it <laughs> I, we do not see the scene where he's out in la gathering up homeless people to release like doves or vultures into this wine cellar um but I'm one of them, and uh, I did actually get an on-screen credit. And um, I mean, my whole life, my whole <laughs> life is just like, no, homeless people do not act batshit crazy just right. because, you know, no, transvestites don't act batshit crazy. What, what did you do? Dose them before you brought them here? What the fuck? <laughs> And no, there's no reason. There doesn't need to be a reason. They're homeless. They're transvestites. No explanation is necessary. Yeah. They're just going to act like assholes because that's who they are. And so, yeah, I found out what the price of my soul was by accepting that part. Um, <laughs> that would be my least favorite. I did want to return to that interview from documentary.com. Um, yeah. You the interview ended with this quote. You said, you know, I expect to continue to get approached for the occasional street crazy or drug addict or night hotel clerk 
or dementia sufferer or yes, homeless man and otherwise make my own work. Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is unlikely to change that despite its artistry and prominence. It's a director's film, not an actor's film. And I just, I wanted you to elaborate on that because honestly, and I do love it. And I, I went to film school. So like I have a ton of film references in the back of my head and I hate comparing filmmakers, but it feels like a Robert Altman film and it feels like a lost film from the seventies. But I, as a viewer, it all hinges on, on you and the other participants in the movie. So I'm just curious what you mean by that. I've made it, I made it clear in that interview and, and probably in this interview that, and certainly it's not anything that I've kept secret from the Rosses. I've not been dishonest about it. Um, my, I, I had and have my trepidations about having agreed to do the project at all. Um, there is an irreducible element of exploitation in it that you just, you can't get past. Um, and you just have to decide whether or not it's worth, uh, the end result is worth the ride. And, and I knew going into it, although I received a couple of bad shocks on the day of filming, I knew what I going into it, what I was signing up for, and I knew the risks involved, um, the risks of on-camera humiliation. And I went ahead with it anyway, out of vanity or whatever. I can't, I can't claim like ignorance. Um, I expected them to get a work of art out of the other end. I did. I did not expect them to accomplish something that it appears to me, and I'm going to mispronounce this. Um, I did not expect them to accomplish something that appears to me to be sui generis, okay. one of a kind. Yeah, yeah. I really think that they, I mean, there are antecedents to this film. But there are not many, and they are not close antecedents. It is, I think, not only a piece of art, but something new in the culture. And things that are new in the culture at this <laughs> stage of the game are vanishingly rare. Absolutely. Things that are actually contribute, like, we've never seen this before. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets is on, we've never seen this before. Part of what makes it a we've never seen this before is that whatever the inherent exploitation of their premise, they treat everybody on camera with kindness and generosity. Nobody is held up as a figure of uh, mockery or fun. And there were plenty of opportunities. I know I was there. (laughs) There were were plenty of opportunities to do so. And and they worked through their footage um, with a, a, a sense of 
humanity and generosity that is missing from their premise. Okay. And I, and that I think is why the individual faces, the individual characters on screen resonate as much as they do because they're not presented. There is again, an irreducible element of this, but they, they are not presented as characters in a creatures in a zoo right be gaped at there's no there's no condescension there's no inherent mockery um they're given they're given their due uh they're given their due respect as human beings and i think that's an essential element of what makes it new in the world because God knows we've seen we've had plenty of movies that have made fun of the lower classes. Absolutely. <laughs> Does that help? Oh, that's I mean that's great. That's an amazing answer because it's also forced me to think about it in a different way and I I have gone into it thinking I'm I'm very I was nervous yeah. when I first started watching it because of those those reasons and and oh it, it's one of the critics I want to say it's I, that's another thing that's happened I never used to pay I have paid more attention to film criticism in the last eight months than I have <laughs> in the last thirty years I've read critics that I've never even knew existed um, and the, because it's prompted so much intelligent response including hostile response it's in the minority but it's out there um and uh i think it was i think it was vanity fair i i don't know it was either mad zoller sites or richard lawson yeah one of the two of them uh both of them just top flight critics um who pointed out that his own worry of exploit that these people were people who were being exploited was it's was perhaps itself classist. Yeah. I think that was Lawson. Yeah. And yeah. that also stopped me. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Michael, you're acting like a you're you're acting and thinking like you're the only one in the room who's hip to what's going on and everyone else is just being used. No, no. There, I have no guy. I know one woman, two. Uh, I know one woman who seriously regrets her participation and wishes the movie didn't exist. And, and another woman, both of them in minor roles. And another, another woman who would be just as happy not to hear another word about it. She doesn't <laughs> despise it, but she's not thrilled. Um, but other than that, I have no firsthand knowledge of anyone who re and in that room that day that who regrets having been there. Um, uh, and I have no reason to think that they didn't know from the get-go what they were signing up for. Um, if I am that insistent about the dignity of the working poor then I ought to grant them the same dignity that, you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go get drunk for 10 hours and he's going to film me. Fine. <laughs> Sounds like fun. What's the issue here? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I just, I'm giving myself the credit of self-awareness of what I was getting myself involved in. There is no, I have no earthly reason not to deny other people that same awareness. 
but my answer would be very different if I were looking at that thing and thinking that people had been felt, held up as figures of mockery. True. My answer would be very different. Absolutely. Well, Michael Martin, thank you so much for taking so much time because I, I was like, oh man, I really don't want to keep them. And you answered all my questions. I love talking. I love <laughs> talking, particularly um, about myself. It's great. <laughs> Uh, where can people find you online so they can get in contact? Uh, with you? I do not have, tell them to go to michaelmartinneworleans.com, but tell them not to go soon. There's nothing there yet. <laughs> tell them to check in a month and by then I'll have some shit on my website that I'm paying for and not doing anything with. Um, I'll get on that tonight. <laughs> MichaelMartinNewOrleans.com. Otherwise, it's the usual IMDb or Facebook or Twitter. It's I'm I'm on every social media. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And if anybody is out there listening that can hire this man, hire this man. He is yeah. so good and so deserving of the work. So thank you very much for joining us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. I cannot thank Michael Martin enough for sitting down with me. It truly was uh, not just a fascinating interview, but such a, I I felt the same after I felt watching the movie where I felt like Mm. renewed. I felt better about, you know, things and he, I don't know. He inspires me. Yeah. And I, I texted you immediately after when he, he said, you know, he considered himself a failure and, you know, maybe it was, uh, maybe down on himself about, you know, his career. But I similarly was feeling inspired by him. Like, man, this is a guy who continues to work at it, is so, so smart, is doing drag, and is just <laughs> such a fucking cool guy. And I he's, he's jokes a lot about um, his website and this and that. I was like, fuck the website. I want to go to New Orleans. I want to go to the bar where he's yeah. at and just have, like, a great time. And, you know... Uh, shoot the shit because uh yeah I, I keep thinking about more and more i think about the movie it it reminds me about and he talks about this the form of the movie and and the everything about it to me is like this is a new thing it's exciting it's fresh it's um thought provoking um yeah so i hope you guys go and check it out and uh uh maybe show some love to Mr. Martin. Uh, he apparently is just very reachable on Facebook. Yeah. You know, he talked a lot about being on Facebook and on Twitter. <laughs> and as I said in the interview, please, if you have the capacity to hire this man as an actor, please do. Uh, he will turn a performance for you. Yeah. He certainly yeah. will. But In or out of drag. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you told them that we tipped the dolls. I was oh, like, yeah. Ex- excellent. excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us for this bonus episode of The Mixed Reviews. We're so happy to have you. We will be back next week with a full episode. Yes. Uh, but until then, if you want to reach us, you can find us on Twitter at, at The Mixed Reviews. We're also on Facebook. Just type in The Mixed Reviews. You can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We are always open to suggestions. Yes, and we're also on Instagram. It's the underscore mixed underscore reviews. 
And if you want to subscribe to the show and listen as you have been this entire time, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Music, iHeartMedia, Audible, Amazon. We're everywhere. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please stop by and leave us a review and a five-star rating. We will read it on the show. I promise we will do that. We have a couple in the backlog. We'll get to them. Don't worry. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Uh, Happy um, saying goodbye to our fearless Cheeto that we hate so much. Yeah. Good riddance. Good fucking riddance. No one will miss you. (laughs) No. Michelle Branch, goodbye to you. Uh, (laughs) Bye. Bye.